P.S. Loud, Hella Black, episode 94. This episode was a long, long time coming, man. We and my family, Jaleel Takim, a new African revolutionary, tap in with us on Hella Black, you feel me? Jaleel talks about his upbringing in San Francisco and San Jose. He talks about why he joined the Black Panther Party and eventually the Black Liberation Army. Jaleel also talks about the Republic of New Africa and what New African means as it relates to Pan-Africanism. We also talk about his book, We Are On Liberators, Spirituality, the Jericho Movement, and more. This is an episode you can listen to over and over and over again. So free your mind, and your ass gonna follow. Tap on Hell of Black, patreon.com slash Pod, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, wherever you listen to your podcasts, we in there. Tap in. I'm glad we're able to make this happen. Yeah, my brother. You know, we got the bottom yeah. tribe in here, rocking. Yeah, the bottom <laughs> tribe and, and, and the last thing. You know yeah. what I'm saying? Yeah, so it's all good. You know? Yeah, I'm super grateful because uh, your name is, has come up on this podcast a lot, um, especially over the last year and a half. And so now for us to damn near not have to speak for you no more or wonder what you would have said, you know, we able to just pass the mic. I'm, I'm, I'm grateful. And, I'm I'm really excited. Thank you, bro. I appreciate that, man. But you know, with Cuz right there, you know what I'm saying? He played yeah. he work, man. He found he found the legacy, so it's all good, man. You know, he's keeping the, keeping the tradition alive. You know, from generation to generation, and that's extremely important. You know, it's important for for our young folks. You know, those who generation behind me. You know, and behind the generation behind them to know that this thing is not a, not a sprint, that it's a marathon. All right, and if we have to go from generation to generation. To achieve our liberation and freedom, and that's what we have to do. And so it's up to the elders to be able to pass that information, that knowledge down to the next generation. And what I say is that I pass the baton, right? And the next generation got to be there to be able to pick it up, right? As I pass it on, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah a thousand percent. I mean, because I think a lot of times in the movement these days, there isn't too many like uh, intergenerational conversations that are happening. You know what I'm saying? Where we can learn from, you know, folks like you. You know what I'm saying, and, and the way to move forward, you know, the mistakes that were made in the past, and how how, how do we grow a, a movement that is organized, disciplined, you know, and following a, a political ideology um, that meets revolution, you know? Well, in terms of ideology, the ideology has to be based upon our history. You know what I mean? It has to be subject to the history and the conditions and the social conditions that we that we live in, the political social conditions that we live in. We evolve an ideological foundation from basis for our own freedom. And, and independence, all right? But if you don't know history, then you're gonna have that foundation which you can build an ideological uh, uh, course of action, all right? As in ideology comes from the word idea, right? And ideas are like what you think, you see what I'm saying? So the determining factor is this here, what you think is determining how you're gonna act or how you're gonna behave, right? If you think crooked, you're gonna act crooked. If you think like a criminal, you're gonna act like a criminal, right? If you don't think like a revolutionary, you ain't gonna act like a revolutionary, all right? So that's the ideology, all right? So for us, you know, I, I think about the um, old song from the um, Parliament of Funkadelics, right? Some of you may, maybe remember George Clinton and, and the Parliament of Funkadelics? Yeah. And in one day song, they said what? Free your mind. Come on now, come on now. <laughs> Why you look at me? I'm not supposed to be the musical. Hold on. <laughs> Free, your mind, your ass. Free your mind, your ass gonna follow. Oh, your oh. ass will follow. <laughs> 
your mind and your ass will follow. So that's the idea, right? All right? We need to free our minds. You know what I'm saying? And if we can free our minds, free our understanding of what the conditions are that we're living in, right? Move towards our own national liberation, our own independence. You know, we're gonna do the work. You know, right? We're gonna do the work. But for long as our mentality is subject to our own oppression, right? Uh, based upon the kind of uh, 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 repression that we have been under for the last 400 something years, all right? You know, we are traumatized people. You know what I'm saying? And our goal and objective is, is, in terms of the struggle, is to free our minds right, from, from this trauma, right? And in the process of doing so, we will behave in accordance to freeing our minds, right? Uh, my book, for instance, uh, for, for um, We Are All Liberators, right? The model, the idea, the slogan is that we have to liberate ourselves, all right? But we have to think in terms of being liberators. Right? If we're thinking in terms of liberators, how are we going to be having liberation? All right? <clears throat> so that is, I, that's the reason why the name of that book. All right? Because I want to put in people's minds that we need to be liberators. Right? We need to be emancipators. We need to be abolitionists. All right? And if we can get in our heads, get that in, in our minds, you know what I'm saying? Then we're in the process of decolonizing ourselves. Right? All right? Because we have been, what? Colonized. As a people, right, and we're thinking in terms of that oppression of the colonizer, right. So now, <clears throat> how we do that? We got to divorce ourselves from the colonizer, right? Divorce ourselves from the, the type of mentality that was been imposed upon us through centuries of oppression. That's a process, right? And it's generational, right? Um, the civil rights movement made some, some very good strides. Right, but their strides was to become part of the colonizers and not separate from the colonizers, right? Uh, and that was, that was a problem, right? And that's the reason why uh, uh, Willie Ricks and uh, Stokely Carmack came out to the idea through the civil rights movement for what? Black power, right? To distinguish the movement from that of, in, of integration and assimilation to one of empowering ourselves and our people, right? So you can't empower yourself if you want to be wrong, live along and alongside of and be a part of the colonizer. You can't empower yourself. They will not permit it. Not only that, your mentality in and of itself, thinking that you can empower yourself, being a part of the, the colonizer, is warped. Right? It's subject to your own trauma. And so this idea of assimilation into a system that didn't want you in, 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 in the first place. Is skewed, a skewed way of thinking. All right, I'm getting another example: <clears throat> white supremacy, white people, right? And the idea of white supremacy. Where did that come from? Now, why would anyone think that they can have be have, be supreme one, and then be supreme over other peoples? All right. That in itself is is is, in my opinion, and I think some psychologists will also agree, or psychiatrists also agree, is neurotic. So that's some neurotic thinking, you know. That's some god complex thinking. I was gonna say sadistic. Well, the, the practice of that <laughs> is sadistic. Yeah. But the thinking in and of itself is neurotic. Yeah. Right. It's, I'm almost say schizophrenic because you're really thinking outside of reality, right? You're operating on the basis of thinking outside of reality. So white supremacy is a flawed idea in and of itself, and therefore it's a flaw, a flawed practice, right? And I tell white people, say, listen, you want to be white supremacist? Fine with me, right? You be as much white supremacy as you want to be. But when you try to impose white supremacy on me, I got a right to defend myself. All right? 
That's my right. So I tell white folks, the issues of white supremacy is your problem. Don't make it our problem. And it's important for you, white folks, to go to your uncles, your brothers, your cousins, right, your aunties, who carry that Confederate flag and so forth and so on, and tell them that they're wrong, that their mentality is skewed, right? That's white folks struggle. And they have to deal with that. It comes our struggle when they try to impose white supremacy upon us. All right. But in terms of in terms of developing a universal our own universal humanity, right? In terms of white folks in, in, in of themselves, they have to go to they have to deal with their issues within themselves. All right. <clears throat> so that, that's the issue that we have to understand for ourselves in terms of how we want to move forward as a people. Right? Anytime we hit, we can continue to find put expend more more energy on white folks than we do on black folks, <laughs> we got problems. All right. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? Yeah. So and that's part again, that goes back to free your mind and your eyes will follow. Right? Yeah. We got to free our minds. You see what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Uh um Malcolm once said <clears throat> that uh he he don't consider himself American. Right? You know, he said he bought black, for black and if it ain't about black, it ain't about him, right? And you don't care nothing about Americanism because Americanism is no more than uh, you say no more. The, democracy is no more than, than hypocrisy, all right? And that's the quote. That's the understanding how Malcolm understood uh, our relationship to America, right? And so when we come to that again, when we come to that understanding, right? We come to emancipate ourselves, come to the ideas of being an abolitionist, come to the ideas to be liberators, right? Then we are divorce ourselves from the mentality of want to be assimilators and integrators. All right? Because becoming that is essentially is this negation of ourselves. Right? We call it negation of the negation. All right. <clears throat> and so at any rate, I just want to share that that point in regards to what you were saying, you know? Yep. A thousand percent. So so what led you uh, what led to you freeing your mind? You know what I'm saying? What was that like for what was that process like, you know, growing up in Fillmore and you know, having having a politicization, you know, what what led to what led to that, you know what I'm saying? And what led to you identifying as a new African and whatnot. And yeah, what's the story behind that? Uh, okay. This that's a I lot in the one back. question, but <laughs> <laughs> but it takes it takes me all the way back, right? It takes me back to growing up, right? And it goes it takes me back to my mom, right? And I give all praise to my mom, right? For everything that she has done for me and my and, and my siblings although although we don't ever ever agree with everything right but we know it came from the right place my mom as a, as a young woman young mother she was a, a an african dancer she's learning she was a student of african dance all right <clears throat> and in the process of her being a student of african dance she taught my sister and i african dance and one thing that she let us know that upon learning this african dance that we africans all right so that's a, sitting at the, at the foot of my mom's, I learned that I'm an African, right? I'm not a Negro, I'm not a coon, I'm not any other derogatory names that they try to impose upon us, all right? And therefore, my thinking in, in terms of my own identity is that I'm of, of, of African descent, right? I was raised that way. All right, now, uh, as we grow up, of course, and during my days, we had to deal with the issues of Jim Crow, right? Self-imposed or the imposition of, of segregation and, and, and division between the nationalities. 
And I remember one time <clears throat> I um, was riding the school bus, uh, the, the school, going to school, riding the bus to school. And at that time, black folks was always had to sit in the back of the bus. So as a young, I think I was eight or nine years old, right, in Fillmore, living in Fillmore. And uh, I wanted to sit in the front of the bus. And the bus driver said, take your black ass to the back of the bus. So one white woman stood up and she said, listen, he can sit up here in front of me, with me. And the bus driver was a little pissed off about that, but I sat up front with her. Right? On way. Then when she got to her bus stop, she left, got off the bus. Right? And the bus driver said, she's gone, take your black ass in the back of the bus. Right? So I stood up and I looked around and see if there was any other person, any other white person who's going to stand up for me. None did. All right? And that let me know that there are some people good and some people are here to the law. All right? I went to the back of the bus. All right? And that also informed me that in our social order, law rules. Okay? And so it was the law that the determining factor our people's behavior, all right, Jim Crow laws, right? And then they acted upon in support of those laws. Messed up law, messed up mentality, messed up uh, behavior, all right? <clears throat> so that was a learning experience for me, one of the learning experiences for me. By the time I got into uh, high school, naturally the civil rights movement had moved towards the Black Power movement, all right? And we began the processes of trying to get Black studies in high school. So I became a leader of the Black Student Union, and we fought for Black Studies in high school. Uh, one of the uh, person that impressed me at that point in time, because I was pretty good in school, all the time I was always good in school. Right? School was easy for me. And uh, one of the person was my math tutor was John Carlos. Right? John Carlos was the iconic uh, photo of he and uh, uh, and Tommy Smith raising their fists at, uh, uh, at the 1968 Olympics. Yeah. He taught you in school. He was, he was one of my, my math tutors. At what school was? Uh... What, what high school did you go to? At that time, it was San Jose, uh, Overfield High School, East Side San Jose. Okay. That's where the high school at, right? I went to elementary school in San Francisco and a high school in, in, in San Jose. All right. Um, and he was going to San Jose State University at the time. Okay. Uh, uh, you know, track and field. That was his, his, uh, uh, his uh, athletic scholarship, I imagine. All right. And so during that, during that time, the, the, a lot of times the, um, the college guys, college kids, kids, particularly those in BSU, they would go down to the high schools, the elementary schools, and tutor young people, right? Again, passing it, passing it forward, you know what I'm saying? Uh, and being tutors and, and helping assisting uh, the, the younger people, right? But we had a movement at that time. We had an ideology of, that we need to work um, with and amongst each other, all right? <clears throat> and so that was one of, one of the things that helped me evolve in terms of my... Uh, uh, my understanding of, of the struggle in and of itself. But naturally, when I saw the Black Panthers, right, two things. One, I had some old, old elementary school friends at Sam Sucre who had joined the Black Panther Party, who I used to go down in Sam Sucre in the summertime and hang out with, right? And two, when I saw the brothers uh, do that march, uh, uh, march up to uh, Sacramento, right, with weapons, uh, trying to defy, uh, at that time, was Governor uh, Ronald Reagan, who was trying to change the law. Again, remember talking about law now, right? We tried to change the law because uh, at the time, uh, prior to uh, the Panthers started having weapons or carrying weapons, there was a, a California should be an open weapon uh, state, right? You can carry your weapon, all right? Yeah. But now when Panthers stopped carrying their weapons, now they want to change the law, 
Well, for right. that, and the NRA came in, you know? <laughs> yeah, well, before that, you know what I'm saying? And so they wanted to change the law, all right? And so the Panthers went up to Sacramento, carrying their weapons, and saying, listen, this is what the law says. We can carry our weapons. But that was called the, the, the Edmonds Act. Edmonds Edmund, Edmund Act, I believe it was called, right? <clears throat> and uh, they changed the law in order to, to uh, prevent black folks in general all right, uh, to possess weapons, right? Uh, again, that, that's the idea. If you're using your weapons in support of white supremacy, then you're good. But if you're using your weapons in support of black liberation, then you're bad, all right? So let us understand how the law is applied or how the law is applied. Right? So, and so ultimately, at some point in time, I decided to be part of the Black Panther Party. I had joined, I signed in and joined when I was 16. Right, went down to the office. I was helping with the papers with me and my boys, my uh, elementary school friends who had since become members, and I was down and hang out, hanging out with them, and uh, working on uh, bundling the papers so they could be distributed across the country, and uh, assisting with that. You know, taking them out the trucks and so forth. And I said, I'm gonna join. I went in the office and I joined up in the Fillmore office of, uh, of the Black Panther Party. All right. Uh, again, I was living in San Jose, going to high school in San Jose. And so I was taking my information I was learning from San Francisco, I was taking it back to San Jose and in my engagement with the Black Student Union. What right? was and, what was the black population like in San Jose at that time? Oh wow. Um I, I don't think it was very many, you know what I mean? Uh San Jose was primarily uh, Mexicans and uh uh Chicanos and uh Mexicans and white people, right? And there were a scattering of black people. In the neighborhood that I was living, it was rather diverse. Uh, we had uh, several uh, black uh, families in there, and uh, uh, Latina families in there, Latina ex families in there, and uh, and mostly uh, white families. And uh, for the most part, we got along, you know. And once in a while, there was skirmishes between blacks and whites, you know, as you find across the country at, at time from time, you know. But uh, how many of y'all were in the Black Student Union? Oh, it was about fifteen. Fifteen. About 15 yeah, in the high school, you know. So. But then we have black student unions in, in San Jose in the high schools. We have black uh, black uh, student unions in uh, San Jose State University and also in uh, San Jose City College. So y'all were all working uh, together. We were all working together, right? I used to go on, on speaking tours with the uh, black student union uh, leader of uh, in San Jose State and also uh, San Jose City College. And the three of us would go to different different schools and give presentations. You know, we're saying about black history, culture. Right and and the issues of, of the struggle that was going on at that time, particularly in regards to the issues of uh, trying to get ethnic studies or black studies into schools, right? And that was our goals and objectives then. Right? Yeah. And we got a problem, and matter of fact, we got a problem with that here in uh, Rochester where I live today. You know, there's no ethnic studies, there's no black studies uh, in in these schools, and we are we are working diligently trying to uh, change that, change that reality. Yeah, I think there's a important lesson there too. You know, you're talking about being in high school, then you also have the college BSU, and then you also have the city college all working together. All working together. I, I think right. that's a good lesson for black students today is like, yeah, you feel me? If you at UC Berkeley BSU, you should be tapping in with Berkeley High's BSU. You know, and Berkeley High should be tapping in with the middle school BSU, you know, and, and building building amongst the youth. I think that's super yeah. important. Extremely important. because uh, uh, And the reason why is because uh, uh, there's lessons learned. You're teaching, right? You're preaching and you're teaching. And you're teaching and you're preaching, all right? And you, again, you're passing the torch from one generation to the next, right? You have the continuity 
and, and building a movement. And it was just extremely important. All right. And unfortunately, uh, with the destruction of the Black Panther Party uh, by COINTELPRO, right, was devastating, devastating in the manner by which uh, uh, they destroyed the party. Uh, they used every type, every type technique, uh, uh, tactic that they used to de, de uh, 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 to destroy a nation, a nation state. Every type of tactic to, to do that, uh, they used it against the Black Panther Party, right? Everything from infiltration, assassination, uh, poison pen letters, uh, bombings, shootings, um, uh, everything you can imagine. Where they destabilize a nation, destabilize the country, use all those kind of tactics to destabilize and destroy the Black Panther Party. Right? That's the problem of the state. Right? And if you ever seen that movie, and I just saw it the other day, uh, the Fred Hampton uh, yeah. Judas and the Black Messiah. Yeah, Judas and the Black Messiah. Right. Uh, one thing that indicated to me was the dedication of the brothers and sisters who were part of the Black Panther Party. They're willing to lay down their lives, you know, for the struggle. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. And that's powerful, right? They believe, right? Their minds was free. You see what I'm saying? And they're acting according to that. And so, and that's the reason why J. L. Hoover said that the Black Panther Party was the, was the greatest in, internal threat to the United States, right? So you have free-minded, free-minded thinking Black people. <sighs> that's a reality right there, right? That's a threat to the United States. We have free-minded thinking Black people. Um, I know, I feel like a lot of us, especially the folks who listen to our podcast and me, myself, I, with you and Blake being family, I know he knows a lot more about your, your personal history than I do. And I think a lot of us have got to know you through your ideologies, but I think it's very important for ourselves and our listeners to get to know you a little bit more as a person. Um, and so I'm definitely interested in hearing a little bit more about that story of, you know, you, you going to school in San Jose, yep. working with the Panthers and Fillmore. Uh, yep. So as you're taking stuff back and forth, what what is, what is the the continued process for you? Um, like as you get deeper and deeper into the work of the Panthers and reaching these new ideologies and, and practices. Uh, well, one thing is continuity, right? Again, like I said, in our household, in my household, you know, we had pictures of uh, growing up. I had pictures of uh, of Malcolm X and Martin Luther King and Rap Brown and and Ron Karanga. You know, we had pictures like that on the walls in, in our house, right? And so my thinking growing up uh, was that this is what I'm supposed to do. You know, this is what, how I'm supposed to live. You know what I mean? Uh, uh, to be an inspiration and, and a practitioner of the ideas of, of freedom and liberation and independence. And so uh, naturally after I got arrested, right, was captured and sent to prison, I continued, right? Continued organizing while I was in prison, right? So for me, there is no other way, right, in my thinking, right? Uh, because the conditions for which we live in has proven that we, if you don't struggle, you're going to suffer, right? If you don't struggle, it's going to be a continuation of conditions of, of oppression, right? Of racism and white supremacy, right? And exploitation of black people and black lives, right? So uh, we have to engage, you know? Now, when I was young, of course, I thought we were going to have revolution in our lifetime and we're going to be, you know, be victorious in our lifetime. As I mature, I understand now that it is a marathon. There's not a sprint, right? It's from one generation to the next. All right, like I say, uh, so the people over there, you know, we we engaged in 450 years of traumatic uh, oppression, right? We've only been 150 something years since out, out of that oppression, moving towards liberation, 
all right? So, I mean, that's, what, 250 years or almost uh, 300 years of uh, decolonizing, uh, de-traumatizing that we have to get over. You know what I mean? Uh, it's, it's a process. Yeah. And uh, for me today, it's, it's a question of what I do today, what I contribute today, is to make it something less that has to contribute but for the next generation. Uh, my kids, my grandkids, my great-grandkids, all right? So every contribution that we make today makes it easier for our, for those who follow behind us, right? And uh, that, that's important too, right? Have that kind of thinking in your mind that your contribution does mean something, as small or as big as it may be, right? It has an impact, right? A historical impact, at least a footprint, if nothing more, right? Uh, a footprint for someone to follow those tracks, all right? And we have to understand that. And that's the reason why we need to continuously call our people to free their minds so their ass will follow. All right? All right? So let's go. So now you asked uh, more about my, my personal. Yeah, so I mean, so from, you said you were, you got arrested at 18, right? 19. 19, 19. so what was, if you joined, what, what, what was those three years like for you from being 16, joining the Panthers and Fillmore? up until 19 years old. You know, you talked about doing the the, the papers. Um, did you do programs, program? programs, uh, fighting against drugs in the, in the community, uh, engaging in the free health clinic, supporting free health clinic, right? Uh, eventually I was uh, recruited into the Black Underground. Yeah, right? I, yeah I, I, uh, I'm happy that you speak on like common, some of the more like, well, it's all dirty work. I guess, but you know what I'm saying? Like, I think so So often people just get caught up in the, the speaking and the monumental things like going up to the Capitol and, and bearing arms. And it's like, what was the, you know, that day-to-day -day stuff that folks work. had to do? You know what I'm saying? Yeah. It's all the grunt work. We call it the grunt work. That's that's what's important. Why? Because the Black Panther Party had what they call a uh, 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 survival program, survival pen revolution, right? Mm -hmm. And survival programs was, was the means by which the community supported the Black Panther Party, the Black Panther Party supported the community. There was a, a synchronization between the two, all right? And what was important about that because when the police used to vamp on the party, the community used to come out and support the party. You, you see what I'm saying? Yeah. You know, because they recognized that the party was an instrument in support of them. It was like an intercommunal exchange, you know? Absolutely, right, right? A reciprocal relationship, okay? Because they recognize the Black Panther Party represented their best interest, the community's best interest, all right? And they were invested, therefore, they were investing in the community, and the community was invested into the party. Via the survival programs. The, the survival programs. Today, I call them decolonization programs, right? Mm -hmm. In my book, I call them decolonization programs, right? We need to develop decolonization programs. We need to decolonize ourselves from having such dependence on the government, having yeah. dependence on the system that is ultimately used through to to oppress us all right so we need to develop these decolonization programs and we have to think in ourselves these are the kind of programs that we're building right alternative programs to what exists today right and 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 creating cooperative working relationships amongst each other in terms of our needs so if we can develop these decolonization programs and find ourselves growing more uh, dependent upon ourselves rather than dependent upon the government then we can see how much more we can empower ourselves, right? Instead of being dependent. Right. And so decolonization is extremely important. And it is a process. Again, we got to free our minds and our behinds will follow. Right? 
Yeah, that's right. That's 100%. Because yeah. it's like so many folks are so obsessed with destroying, which is rightfully so, but at the same time, we're destroying these systems. We got to be building new systems and showing people that, you know, there's an alternative to the, the system that they're experiencing. Absolutely correct. I tell people, I tell people today, hey, it's about what I hate, about what I love, right? It's not about what I'm going to destroy, but what I'm going to build, hmm. right? That's important. So if you're building something, that means you're replacing something, right? Yeah. So let's build something that replaces the old and build something new, right? Let's create alternatives to the existing system that has not worked for us, right? And deliberately, right? It's structured in the system not to work for us. All right, and we come to the understanding, you know, we have to create systems that that work for us, right? Made for us, by us, for us, all right? And that's the idea of liberation, right? And building towards independence. So that's the process that we have to get in our heads, in our minds that this is what we need to achieve, right? <clears throat> uh, unfortunately, again, you know, uh, we're, we're so caught up in, in the colonization system that we have become dependent. Right. And so we have black folks who would say that I can't live without no white folks. You know, I can't live without this system. You know what I mean? I remember like Chicken George and, and Roots. Right? <laughs> oh. When he said, I don't know how to be free. You know what I'm saying? You know, that's real they, shit yeah. though. That's how a lot of people live. Uh, I know they believe that. Yeah. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah, I don't know how to be free. You know what I'm saying? And, and, and I understand it because it's a talk experience. Right? Like Pavlov dog. Right, you spin a Pavlov dog, you know what I'm saying? And if you ring the bell, the dog comes to salivating looking for the food, right? We've been taught to hear that bell, you know what I'm saying? And go run to the master for the food, you see what I'm saying? So we got to get out of that, man. Yeah, that, that's two things I learned from uh from you and, and Kwame Toure, and and we are on Liberators. You talk about um not wanting to get us us needing to step away from the frame of mind that you know us not being a dependent on a few good white folks. And, you know, Kwame Toure also says, um, they got you running got you running around thinking that everything you got is at the hands of some good, some good white boy giving it to you. Mm, mm. Now, I, that, that is, that's a fact, but now I want, I want to make sure we understand also this, <laughs> there are some good white folks. Yeah. All right, and so, and we need to have those who are woke, to support our movement, right? They always been there, right? There was white folks who were abolitionists, you know, to support our freedom. John Brown, that's one, right? Yeah. But it's been Garrison, that's another, all right? There was white folks who were part of the uh, 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 Harry Tubman's uh, 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 railroad, you know what I'm saying? You know, uh, make sure that we got people come out of slavery, you know, and, and so we need to have those same white folks today. Yeah, that's what that's what me and Blake been battling with out here, just trying to realize like, I don't know, you know, yeah, I think, especially Oakland in the Bay Area is so like multiracial, and you know everybody got a Black Lives Matter sign, you know, in front of their house, but you know that house was just stolen by a bank of a black, you feel me, and they just bought it and gentrified the neighborhood, but Black Lives Matter, so it's so it's so complex, or or you just get so used to being dehumanized by them, it's like. A, a, a fight to not naturally turn into him. You know what I'm saying? And you don't want to. You don't want to model the the actions and ideologies of of those white, white supremacists. You know what I'm saying? The folks that you again, right? Like the white supremacists that you named earlier. Um, yeah. yeah, it's it's hard though. But yeah, I, I think 
reading your stuff and, and thinking about the Panthers and the Rainbow Coalitions, realizing that like it's gonna take um, solidarity, international solidarity. It's gonna take you know white folks in our own communities to back us for us to really get free. We would be ignorant to think that we could do this all on our own as we try to build a new Africa. It's gonna take support. Well, absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. And like I said before, it's gonna take white folks to deal with this white supremacy. You yeah. know what I'm saying? You know, they have to deal with their own conscience, their own white skin privilege, right? And, and understanding that their humanity is being at task, all right? That their humanity is being at task, right? And in, in essence, white supremacy divorces itself from humanity. It lowers, it trying to lower us over humanity, right? And that's a problem white folks have to deal with, you know, white skin privilege, right? And the system has has created this idea whereby they believe that what they're doing is right, right? That it is, uh, in certain instances, humane. Or in, in the most in the stream, it's just godlike, right? It's the quote unquote natural way of life. <laughs> a natural, yeah, natural way of life, right, right. You know what I'm saying? That's where the whole thing of eugenics come from. You know this idea, you know, of eugenics. You know, inferior and superiority, right? And some people are inferior, and some people are, are superior, right? It is a false premise, right? Again, if you, if your ideology is based upon that, then you behave like that. Right, so we need to change our thinking. We need to change our ideology, right? And we need to change our ideology to what? Emancipation, abolitionist, and liberation. Right? Emancipation, abolitionist, liberation. And if we take those three points and understand the, the, the qualities of each one of those, emancipation, abolitionist, and liberation, then you will, in fact, free your mind. So your behind will follow. Yeah. So, you know, you, you, you joined the Black Panther Party at 16 and then, you know, eventually you're recruited into the underground. Uh, can you talk a little bit more about the underground and, and the Black Liberation Army and, and kind of the history um, of the BLA, which, you know, you outlined it and we are on liberators, but can you talk a little bit more about that? Uh, what, what I talk about in the, in the book, We Are On Liberators, is information that was provided by the Law Enforcement uh, Association or something, the LEAA. And that's where I gleaned that information from, all right? So I want to make it understood that there's nothing in that in that book that is not already known by the government. That's where the information came from. Right. All right. Uh, what is also should be known, right, from everyone, is that when the Black Panther Party came into existence in 1966, October 1966, one of the things that Huey Newton and and, and Bobby Seale had, had written into the structure of the Black Panther Party was that one rule number six: no Black Panther Party member can join any other or, or underground organization but the Black Liberation Army, all right? So the Black Panther Party was evolved from its own conception that the idea at some point in time, it would be a Black Liberation Army, all right? Now, <clears throat> saying that, um, one LEA report that I remember reading was that in 1968, there was a major riot in Mexico, right? Uh, 1968, and they, the, the authorities down there killed a bunch of people students and, and uh, uh, activists. And uh, according to one uh, report, one person that they found was killed down there, in his pocket was a note that was signed Black Liberation Army. Now, whether or not he was actually a member of the Black Liberation Army back in 1968, or that was from something that was evolving from the Black Panther Party, we don't know, okay? But what we do know is that at all times in the history of uh, Black people in this country, there's always been that kind of resistance, armed resistance, all right? From the various, various slave rebellions across the country, 
throughout the history of black people in America to uh, uh, Robert Williams and, uh, and and him having had to go into exile by fighting the Klan uh, from the uh, African Blood Brotherhood, or many people do not know anything about it. They should learn about it. African Blood Brotherhood, who was armed resistance against the Klan to, to the Deacon uh, uh, of Defense, right? Who supported the, the Civil Rights Movement, armed men, deacons, preachers, etc., right? Uh, in defense of black people, right? To the point where we have the existence of the Black Liberation Army came into existence during the, during the party. So the, the idea that people resisted themselves, resisted or armed themselves to resist, is nothing new in the history of our country or history of, of this country in the history of black people. We just, they don't tell us that, they don't teach us that, all right? Uh, they only want you to be passive or passive resistance, right? The civil rights and all that kind of stuff, right? So uh, there's nothing uh, out of history in terms of uh, there has been young people who arm themselves and to resist uh, 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 police brutality and, and police terror, right? White police terror in our community. Uh, there, there's nothing new about that. Uh, what is new about it was that it was organized, okay? It was organized to an extent where it became a, a serious, they thought, a serious threat uh, to the country. And that's the reason why they clamped down on it so toughly, so ruthlessly, and, the, and destroyed the Black Panther Party and the, the Nasset, Nasset, I remember, because it was infantile in terms of the structure and its organizing. And we also got to remember also that the Black Panther Party was a youth organization, all right? At the inception of the Black Panther Party, was nobody older than 30 years old, right? With 30 years and younger, right? The, the primary, most members of the Black Panther Party was teenagers, right? Major youth organization, all right? That was supremely, supremely in love with Black folks, with Black people, right? And wanted to do the work, wanted to sacrifice themselves in doing the work. It was a youth organization, right, for the most part. And so uh, by virtue of our understanding of that we was engaged in and believe that we're going to build uh, a, a revolution, not necessarily knowing all the principles and tactics of, of doing so, uh, having studied, for instance, the struggles that was going on in, in, in Africa, studied the, the struggles going on in Latin America, right, the Cuban Revolution, uh, the struggles in, in, for, uh, in Angola, Namibia, uh, Mozambique, uh, Guinea-Bissau, uh, South Africa, uh, what's going on down in Tupamaro to Latin America, uh, Zapatistas, and et cetera. We, as young people, Took those what was happening in Algeria, uh, Bala Algiers, as one example. Once one of the uh, movies that we were uh, had, to, had to had to go watch and had to had study, uh, Bala Algiers, as another example. Um, it inculcated in the idea, the thought that we can, in fact, engage in armed struggles. Right. Uh, but we we're infantile, infantile in, in as much as we didn't understand the depth of the of the opposition that we was engaged in. Right, the military might uh, that we engaged in. And so uh, uh, some people said it was adventurous uh, for us to engage in that kind of struggle, right, kind of armed struggle. Some people said it was necessary, right, in order to put checks and balances right, on, a, on the type of uh, uh, impunity uh, that law enforcement was engaged in in killing black people, right? Now, one thing you, you can look in history uh, and statistics and and you can see that, for example, uh, the level of people police murders of black people prior to the BLA, right, and the decreasing of police killing of black people 
when BLA was operating, to the destruction of BLA, and then the increasing of police murders again. All right? All right. That is statistical information that you can find in history. All right? So that's what that tells you. That tells you that when you engage, right, put some checks and balance on things, you save some lives. Yeah. All right? So when they function, yeah. But when they function with impunity, you know what I'm saying, then, you know, our lives don't matter. All right? Uh, so uh, now let's, let me get to that point because Black Lives Matter, again, it's a social consciousness movement, right? I define it as a social consciousness movement and a trend and a tendency, right? It's like the Black consciousness movement of uh, uh, Steve Biko right, in South Africa, all right? Uh, raising the consciousness of people for their own liberation. The Black Lives Matter is, is basically that. It's not a military organization, it's not a revolutionary organization, it's a social consciousness movement. Right, the very consciousness and the idea is that the, we need need to value the lives of black people, right? And so, why would the government seek to resist the idea that black people's lives matter, or there need to be a social consciousness movement, right? Because it lends to the ideas of independence, emancipation, abolitionists, and liberation, right? So they don't want you to be have the ideas that you're thinking that you have some value because if you think you value what you're going to do anything to maintain that value anything absolutely. to show that value absolutely absolutely and that's that is the power of the black lives matter movement and that's the reason why the fbi came up with this idea what they call it a black extremist black identity uh, black, black identity extremist movement yeah so if you take yourself, if you, if, you, if you value yourself as a black person, you know, <laughs> all of a sudden you become extremists. <laughs> Your identity has become extremists because you value yourself. What? <laughs> Come on now. Come on now. Hey, it's, it's, it, they, they'll tell you what, they, what they're thinking. They'll tell you what you're thinking. You know what I mean? Based upon yeah. how you think. Right? Straight up. You, um, you've, been, you've been speaking on this in terms of when you mentioned all these uh, revolutionary moments uh, and revolutions that that actually came into fruition. But I was I wanted to hear you speak a little bit on you know there are people who think that liberation can be found without violence having to be waged by those being oppressed. There are there are black folks, there are African folks that believe that we will get free without checks and balances, as you just named them. Um, and, and what can you say to that? To those people, I can say what Malcolm said, right? Malcolm said, "Listen, <clears throat> basically, said, uh, we have the right to defend ourselves, right?" And that's the whole idea. Remember, Black Panther Party original name that came in existence was Black Panther Party for Self Defense, right? And so, our idea is that we need to preserve our existence, right? And so, if we need to preserve our existence, then there should be no bounds or or reserves a reservation in doing so, all right? Uh, so I believe in self-defense, all right? If you're coming after me, I'm gonna fight back, all right? I gotta preserve my existence. I got I got a human right of self-preservation, all right? And I think all black people should have a human right of self-preservation, all right? And so self-defense is 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 inherited. Of the idea of self-preservation, all right. And so, you know, I'm not going publicly 
uh, tell people that they need to arm themselves and or go out and strike out against the system. We tried that. Uh, and if it's not organized right, they're going to destroy you with the quickness. All right? And I'll tell you what Fred said, right? That our movement is based upon people. All right? If you go watch the movie, he'll, he'll give you lay it straight out. Based upon building a movement of people. That the power is in what? The people. The people. That's why we have that slogan. Power to the people. Right? Because it is government is based upon people's consent. And if you are consent to oppression, then the government gonna continue. All right? So <clears throat> yes, we need we need to figure out the ways and means to which to defend ourselves at all times, right? For the idea of self-preservation. In the course of doing so, we need to organize people because that's our best defense, right? Changing people's minds. And the more people's minds have been changed in support of the struggle, right? The less we have to deal with the questions of armed resistance, right? Or engaging in armed resistance, right? So my, my goal, my thinking is that we need to build a mass movement. Right? So mass movements change the systems. It changes entire government. Mass movements does. Alright? So we'll take the, the quote of uh, I think it was Mao Zedong, that political power comes out the barrel of a gun. Right? <laughs> but yes, the gun has to be mass people. Right? Not a few individuals. You see what I'm saying? And so that quote can be taken out of context. Right, and we need to re really put it in in the proper context. Now, in the proper context that we need to build a mass movement. All right, that's the proper context, and then you defend that mass movement. Yeah, I think it's just being aligned with the masses, then you're able to move. You know what I mean? If you don't have a mass amount of people fighting objectively, you know what I mean, with the same like ideological framework, then then you know. The chances of victory isn't there, you know. Yeah, it all ties back into organ into being organized. Like I think sometimes people think organizing is just like be taking up the same amount of space. It's like not being aligned on every reason of why y'all taking these actions. In fact, that's a fact. Because what good is right. the gun if you don't know the reason even why you're using the gun? You know what I'm saying? You know what good is <laughs> what good is handing out the meals if you don't know why you're handing out the meals? What good is the BSU meetings if you don't know why y'all meeting? <laughs> what good is a medical clinic if you don't know why you're providing a medical clinic? <laughs> we can go on and on, you know. Yeah, go on. That's 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 a fact, bro. And well, so that's 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 what we are intake. Uh, In my book, you'll find that I put forth a theoretical foundation called Three Phase Theory for National Independence. All right. And so it, I try to lay down a, a, a roadmap, right? A plan of action. It's a revolutionary it's, cookbook. Gives you the plan. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's a manual, right? Yeah. If you follow the manual, if you follow the manual step by step, then you'll get to the to the, the to the logical conclusion and, yep. and result. Yo, ass gonna be free, huh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So so that's 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 the important thing. And and I'm, I'm to be honest with you, I'm I'm a little bit uh, surprised to find how that book was written over 20 years ago, you know, 21 years ago when the first wrote, and the second printing was uh, uh 10 years ago, almost 11 years ago, second printing, and you still find that it still resonates today. So it must be something in there that has some value. <laughs> There's a lot of things in there with a lot of value. I'll tell you that. You, you know, you you very humble. <laughs> you very humble. But when I was talking to you the other day, I was like. Man, like you legit 
predicted a Kamala Harris. You legit predicted a Barack Obama. You feel me? And like, you know, I know you said that some of the language is outdated, but for me, I was like, nah, this, this language is predicting and giving me a clear guided outlook on everything that's going on in society and gives me a clear view of like what I need to do to move forward. You feel yeah. me? If, if I want change. Well, but you, you both you you and Delancey, y'all doing the work for what I understand. Y'all doing the work there in, in, in the Bay. You know what I mean? Y'all y'all putting it in. And I and I, I salute. Right? Hey, we, we, we salute doing, you. Right? We salute you, yeah. you feel me? Learn from the, you know, learn from you. You know what I'm saying? Like we learn from our elders and we just a product of that. You know, like Definitely. one thing I say all the time on here is like you know, Delancey says it all the time too. The things we talking about isn't new. You know, we we learning, you know, and we regurgitating a lot of the things that we learn, you know, from folks like you, folks like Asada, folks like Kwame Ture, you know what I'm saying? Um, well, don't forget our brothers inside. Matulu Shakur, right, Sumiata, right? Poindexter, Chip Fitzgerald, right? Uh, we, got, we got a host of, of comrades inside prison that needs to be out. We got a young brother named uh, Kwame Shakur, uh, in Indiana, need to be out. You got brother uh, Rashid uh, Johnson needs to be out. Right? We have some. We got some heavy theoretical brothers inside prison. You know, uh, surviving the madness. And I know what they're surviving, man, because I've been there. I was there almost 50 years. Yeah. Right? And I just got lucky. Uh, you might say, you know, in terms of them, I'll give me an opportunity uh, to be with my family, to be with my moms again, to be with my kids. You know, first time. Now, let me say something uh, for me, right? And this is personal, right? Uh, my release on October 2020 was the first time I ever spent any time with my daughter on the street. She was in the womb, in the womb when I was arrested, when I was captured, all right? So the first time we ever had to spend any time at all on the streets, me being a free, quote unquote, free man, all right? That was a beautiful thing, man. Beautiful yes. thing. Yeah. And so this idea of mass incarceration and how it has imposed, again, some trauma on the black community, you know, separating uh, 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 fathers from their kids, or mothers from their children, right? Uh, uh, divorcing, uh, splitting up families, et cetera. Not only that, but then it also is inhibiting the growth potential of black people in this country. Because here you have uh, young, young boys and young women sent to prison uh, at their most productive years, right? their most productive years, and sent away 10, 20, 30, 40 years, all right? So where's the production of the procreation of our of, of our people, right? That's in 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 essence, that program that practice is genocidal, right? In whole or in part, right? And the part is that they're preventing us from reproduce, right? From generation to generation, right? So you got uh, eight or nine million uh, uh, black people, men and women, over a period of time over years and unable to produce, ain't no wonder that our population in the United States in the last 50 years ain't, ain't past 15%. <laughs> you know what I mean? If they ain't killing us, they put us in penitentiary so we can't produce, you know? Or sterilizing the women, you know what I mean? Come on, but let's look at the reality of the situation, you know, and how it has impacted our lives you know, over, over the last 50 years. It's say 50 years. Now, how does it impact your life since the destruction of the Black Panther Party, since 1970, 71, right? Come on, let's look at this thing. From, from where it has it, kind of impact it has 
socioeconomic and politically on, on our community. It's been devastating, right? On introducing the crack in our community. We all know that it was introduced by the, by the CIA. Cocaine was introduced in our community by the CIA. We all know that. it's well documented. Cocaine right? Intelligence Agency. Yes, that's right. So intelligence agency and the FBI, right? Uh, the, the, what do you call it? Iran Contragate. Uh, 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 yeah, the Iran Contragate. Yeah. Uh, 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 trafficking drugs for weapons for for the uh, for the, the Contras uh, in Nicaragua, right? And using Iranian drugs. Or Iranian transport. I don't know how they were doing it, but they, you know, uh, Gary Webb he did a hell expose on that, you know, exposing all, all that. And they made some movies behind it. And then he ended up dead, the reporter, white guy, right? Under, under suspicion. I don't know why, but yeah, right? by exposing it. But it's as well as documented, you know, uh, how they have done it during the Vietnam War. You know, they had what they call the Golden Triangle. That's when uh, heroin was prominent, predominant in our, in our community, right? Uh, to, to, to suppress what? To suppress uh, uh, the movement at that time. There was riots going on across the country. When then they introduced heroin in the community, the riots dissolved, right? Uh, disappeared, dissipated, right? Because because the community was injected with this uh, with this heroin from the Golden Triangle. Uh, the fools like uh, uh, what is his name? Uh, Frank Lucas and uh, Barnes and Nicky Barnes and and them characters. You know what I mean? Uh, saturating our community uh, with this poison. You know. Um, during a party, we fought diligently against this poison in our community, right? Uh, we, uh, we had pamphlets put out, you know, uh, fighting against uh, the drugs uh, in our community, you know what I mean? So, uh, hey, man, you know, and now today, the next go around, what they come with? They come with this crack, with this cocaine, right? Now they got what they call it, what they call it, deuce, right? Whatever this stuff is that they, these kids are taking now. Madness, they're destroying the people, they're destroying the brain, brain cells with that, this crap, you know. And mm -hmm. so, again, what's the mark? Free your mind and your ass will follow. Right? <laughs> on, on the topic of us freeing our minds, mm -hmm. um, I want to talk about identity. And first, I'm gonna read you a quote by Kwame Ture, and then we're gonna get to the question. So, right. Ture says. You must know if you're African or American because America is Africa's number one enemy. Uh, can you talk about how that quote directly relates to why you identify as new African and what was that uh, decolonization of your mind that led to that? Well, I told you I was already, already identified as being African, right? From, from, from sitting at the foot of my mom's, mm -hmm. right? So I grew up with that idea, right? I'm African, right? Uh, uh, Blake, no. You know, our, our grandfather, my grandfather, uh, back in 1970, uh, 70 or 71, started us, the family with Kwanzaa celebration. I've, I've been to a few of those. Yeah, that's right. right. It's, part of, <laughs> it's a tradition of the, of the bottom family. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? We do Kwanzaa, you know, you know to maintain that kind of culture. If, if anything that Ron Kwanzaa has really uh, um, gave to, to our struggle, right? If anything other than the idea of culture nationalism is going to free somebody, or both <laughs> Kwanzaa. Okay. And I, I salute uh, 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 Ron Karenga for giving us Kwanzaa. Okay. It's a very important tradition. And then Google Saba is very, very important for us to study and understand and, and live by it in Google Saba. But uh, uh, as you ask the question, 
uh, I was in prison. Uh, I think I was in San Quentin, and I was communicating with Imar Obadeli. Imar Obadeli was the first president of the Republic of New Africa, right? And we got to understand that there was a split in the in the party. Ideological, there was an ideological split in the party, I mean, especially the issues of uh, of of uh, um, <clears throat> New African liber New African uh, program, the provisional government of New Africa. It came into existence in 1968. It came into existence in 1968, uh, 500 new Africans and 500 black people uh, in uh, Detroit and a church in Detroit. A lot of people don't know that that church was the church of uh, Reverend Franklin. Who's Reverend Franklin? That was Aretha Franklin's daddy, right? Aretha Franklin's daddy was a nationalist, right, for the most part. I think he grew up as a Garveyite, right? He may have been a Garveyite during, during his growth period. A lot of people don't know nothing about Garvey, but that's another story. Okay, uh, who's a Garveyite? And as a result of his own understanding of oppression, he permitted these five nationalists, these 500 nationalists, to have a meeting in his church. And then they came came at that church in 1968. They decided that they gonna create what they call the provisional government of New Africa. And what is New Africa? New Africa is the five five states of the, what they call the Black Belt, right? And they declared for themselves. That this state, these five uh, um, uh, states, should be the homeland of Black people in the United States, right? And so they evolved what is called provisional government of New Africa. Now let's go back a little further. During the Civil War, almost at the conclusion of the Civil War, <clears throat> uh, General Tuckamase uh, Sherman will put out what is called Field Order Number Fifteen. And you find that, right? And Field Order Number Fifteen indicated that certain lands from South South Carolina South to the Florida Basin would be under the control of the emancipation of African people, of Black people at that time, Field Order Number 15. And Field Order Number 15 <clears throat> basically established what, what, what then became uh, Black nationhood or Black uh, uh, black Belt South, all right? <clears throat> and, um, and they were being protected by the Yankee soldiers, right? These black folks who were emancipated, right? During the course of the Emancipation Proclamation and were protected by black folks. I mean, protected by, by the uh, Yankee army. <clears throat> and they were establishing what they call freedom bureaus all down the South, right? Uh, where they began to, began to build the kind of organizations for their own emancipation and of their own uh, liberation, right? Mm -hmm. taking control of the resources that are available to them for their own survival right during that period of time that's right uh, right before the, the ending of the civil war seven years later i think uh 1987 uh they had um uh a um an election presidential election right between rutherby rutherby hayes and samuel tilden and Rutherby Hayes won the popular vote, but he did not win the electoral vote. Okay, and so then they had a compromise between Rutherby Hayes and Tilden called uh, uh, the Tilden or the Hayes uh, uh, compromise, right? Hayes Tilden compromise, and Hayes Tilden compromise established the, the basis by which uh, Hayes would win the presidency, but in order to do so, he had to withdraw the Yankee troops from the territory, liberated territory. Of black people, all right, and so the Yankees uh, army withdrew from the territory 
of black people were maintaining building liberation or independence, uh, building nationhood, and that became the event of, as the course of Reconstruction, came the event of what? Reconstituting, reconstituting of the Confederates into the Ku Klux Klan. And it had 100 years of lynching down the South, all right? And destroying what was then the part of the Reconstruction, post-Reconstruction, Reconstruction, destroying Reconstruction, and it started the first migration of African people up North and to other parts of, of, of the country. And so <clears throat> when we look at that history, we can see at one point in time, we was already moving and building toward other kind of nationhood and liberation. Uh, and that was destroyed. So um, 1968, uh, knowing this history, these, these 500 people uh, came together and said, listen, we're gonna rebuild. We're gonna reestablish ourselves and we're gonna build what we call the uh, provisional government of Republic of New Africa, all right? And again, like I said, I was in prison and I was engaging Imari uh, uh, Obadeli, who was in Marion prison at the time, and uh, along with his, uh, his brother. And uh, uh, I decided at, at that point in time that I would become a member of and a citizen of the original government of the Republic of New Africa, right? Now, let me ask something. Let me add another point to this. What this thing New African is? What, what is that, right? And one of the things that we have to understand in terms of history as people in this country, that we are an amalgamation, a messenger nation of other groups and peoples, right? Uh, remember that coming, to, coming, being brought here to this country from off the African coast, right? We had the Mandinkas, the House of Fulanis, uh, Mandingos, uh, Ibu, uh, um, all the types of different tribes were brought to this country and were brought together and were made to messenger, messenger together or amongst each other. All right. Not only that, but we also had the Portuguese, the Dutch, the English, the Spanish, who were also messengered into our bloodstream. Not only that, but you also had the the, the Creek and the uh, 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 the Seminoles, right, and the Cherokees, right, messengered into our our bloodstream, right, in our, in our genetic blood clothes, right. And so, by understanding it, accepting that history, right. Uh, 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 recognizing and accepting that history, right? We said, well, then in, in essence, we have created a new African, right? And so that's where we come to that identity. It's come to our own identity of who we are as a people, right? As a people in this country, right? We comprise all these nations, right? So who is better to talk about these issues on both on the humanitarian and worldview than us, right? right? We're the most oppressed and the most wanted to be free. Okay, and had had these kind of relationships with all other peoples on the, on the planet, including Africa, Portuguese, Spanish, the Dutch, and the English, and the Arabs, to name a few. Right. So, given that understanding, that reality, right, historical reality, why not accept that reality and give it identity? Right. And in doing so, what do you do? Free your mind, and your ass will follow. Yeah, so I'm New African, right? I do not identify as me being American, half American, half American, and half African. African <laughs> <laughs> you know what I'm saying? We split, split this thing down the middle. No, uh -uh. I said all that. Okay, I'm a New African. You see? And that's how, you know, again, we have to decolonize ourselves and our thinking, right? Decolonize ourselves, right? Because actually, a free people. A free person, 
Right, and it's a process, bro. It's a process. Definitely. You know, we see New Africa, like, as a part of our liberation um, uh, of African people here, you know, in this land, this so-called America. Um, can you talk a little bit about how New Africa and uh, Pan-Africanism aligned? Oh, well, hmm. yeah, they're aligned because we have people from the diaspora. All right. That's point number one. Uh, and so for Marcus, uh, Marcus Garvey, he came, since he came with the idea, uh, I'm saying he's not the only one, but since he came with the idea of being a Pan-Africanist, all right, and the Marcus Garvey movement. The Marcus Garvey movement was the greatest movement of black people uh, in, 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 in the history of, of, of our struggle. Right? And a lot of people don't know that, uh, that he had uh, organized, his, his organization came from all the way from Brazil and the Caribbean, uh, England, uh, Africa and the United States, right? Uh, and he brought the he brought one brought the, the flag. You know, people don't know that the red, black, and green flag. Marcus Garvey brought that. Okay, and so that our history. Uh, du Bois, after he came out of the uh, W. Du Bois, after he came out of NAACP, right? He involved became a Pan Africanist, right? That's the reason why he's buried in Ghana today. You know what I'm saying? Uh, his whole process. You read Du Bois and read his 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 evolution right, right? And you can people, people don't want to talk about the talent people always want to talk about the talent of 10th but don't talk about how Du Bois you know died a pan-africanist you know what I mean he he's, he's the one who created the first uh, international uh, pan-africanist uh, uh, convention right he was one of the uh, one of the first or the second uh, uh, of, of the uh, pan-africanist convention all right and so people don't understand the history they need to go back to that history and so if you understand that history and the contribution of WD Du Bois Right and Marcus Garvey, then you can see how we can or should be uh, recognize ourselves in terms of African people in the diaspora, that in, in in association with other African people in the world, that we become Pan-Africanists. Right now, well, I'll take a point further. Ghana, the only African nation that has openly, publicly stated that he wants black people to become part of Ghana to have us dual citizenship with Ghana. Public statement, right? They have dual citizenship with Ghana, right? They recognize that we are African people in the, in the diaspora, Ghana, the nation of Ghana, all right? Very similarly, uh, uh, the Jewish people, right? Have dual, dual citizenship with the United States and Israel. Dual citizenship, no problem. No problem whatsoever. So my question then to black people in this country, how can we have not evolved and developed dual citizenship with any other country in Africa, right? That we find affiliation to or find affinity to, why not, all right? And so again, we need to free our mind, decolonize ourselves, right? And think that we are quote unquote, African, quote, half American, right? <laughs> well, we should be African, right? And recognize that. And, be, and build our relationship with ourselves and the mother country, right? Uh, so that's my my understanding and evolution in my understanding in terms of history uh, from Pan-African, from uh, uh, W.D. Boyce and also from Marcus Garvey with the idea of what it means and the importance of having uh, uh, principles and belief in Pan-Africanism. thousand percent. I know a little bit earlier you was talking about, you know, your comrades who are, who are still 
uh, locked up to this day. Um, can you talk about the Jericho movement that you co-founded as well as can you define what a, a political prisoner is for our, our, our listeners? Yeah. Um, some years ago, uh, the Republic of New Africa, RNA, used to have marches in, in uh, um, around uh, uh, the White House. And they called it the Jericho March. All right. That's, that's, that's the inception. It came through the, the provisional government of the RNA. And um, I think it was in 1995 or 96, the RNA stopped having those marches in, in the White House, right, around the White House, calling for the release of political prisoners and et cetera. And so I had to ask the question, why, why is this being stopped? And no one did have an answer for me. And so what I did, I put out a call uh, to the movement to resurrect the uh, Jericho marches, okay, and um, a comrade, uh, Herman Ferguson, Baba Herman Ferguson, and um, Sophia Bukhari, sister Sophia Bukhari, heard my call. They came. We had meetings while I was in prison, and they decided, yes, we we support you, Jalil, and we're gonna make this thing happen. So in 1998, uh, 6,000, approximately 6,000 activists from across the country. Uh, marched, uh, organized themselves, and marched to Washington, D.C., and started the, the event of, uh, the, again, the resurrection of uh, what was the Jericho movement or Jericho marches. And because it was so well-structured, well-organized uh, by Sophia Bukhari and Herman Ferguson, uh, uh, both have are now have gone to the ancestors. Uh, so I'm the only living uh, co-founder of the Jericho movement. Uh, we decided that we would continue. That was in 1998 uh, with the building of a movement, movement in support of political prisoners, right? For the amnesty, fighting for the amnesty of political prisoners. And Jericho has been in existence for almost 20, 20 something years now, right? Uh, doing this work, doing this fight, trying to build support for political prisoners. Any of y'all out there listening to this, right? Go to your website. Download, uh, uh, um, uh, Google, right, Jericho. Find one of your Jericho member, a Jericho chapter in your in your community, and join, right? If you're about to struggle, join Jericho, right? Be a part of this movement of free political prisoners. If you ain't free in political prisoners, then you ain't about no movement. That's a sham movement. That's Audrey on said, right? Uh, it's a sham movement. If you ain't supposed to, hey, because any one of y'all can be a political prisoner. So what you saying? You know. So political prison, political prison is one who, who in prison or outside of prison, literally outside of prison, engaged in struggle and was illegally and or very perhaps legally, and I don't know how you can define legally when he has a law itself is criminal, uh, uh, being confined for the political activity and actions, right, inside prison, uh, sit, sit to prison. Then you have those inside prison who are, uh, uh, who become politicized while in prison, right? And then they have changed their, their criminal mentality into a political mentality. And then they are engaging in the exercise of friend of mine, whatever behind will follow, right? And building structure, understanding, teaching, and, 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 and organizing inside prisons, right? And therefore, their relationship to the state has changed, right? And more often than not, they're being repressed 
because of how they think and how they behave, right? They think like a, like a free person and they behave like a free person. And in prison, that's dangerous, all right? They want you to be a slave and they want you to act like a slave in prison. And so therefore, um, <clears throat> those individuals, we also qualify, quantify and qualify as also being identified as political prisoners, right? Because they, their behavior, their thinking, their attitudes, uh, their commitment to struggle is that of politics, that of freeing, freeing uh, prisoners and freeing themselves, right? And so we qualify them as political prisoners. Now, there are some people who are saying that anybody goes to the penitentiary because of the illegalities or the the, uh, uh, the impossible, some say the impossibility of getting a fair trial because you're black in America, that only makes you a, a political prisoner. I negate that. I refute that idea. If you can't do the penitentiary because you're raping babies, right, you ain't a political prisoner. Right? You can't, or convicted of that. I'm not saying rape, let's say if you're convicted of that. And I'm saying if, you know, if you're innocent, that's another story, right? But if you engage in criminal behavior in the streets, right, selling drugs in our community, right, you're a crime, you're a criminal, right? Because you, you, you create a crime against humanity, you're a crime against our, our peoples, right? Uh, and if you engage in those kind of activities, Right, for whatever reason that you engage in those reasons, economic reasons and so forth, there's an alternative for you to deal with your economic issues, right? Rather than poisoning our community, right? And inhibiting the development of our, of our people, right? So I, I ain't got no support of, of, of drug, drug dealers and, and anybody engaging in that, that kind of activity, right? Uh, and I would not, by virtue of you being in prison, identify you as political prisoners. Nope, not happening. Yeah, I think um, I hadn't really considered the fact that, you know, while you may, let's say if I went to um, to prison for robbing banks and while I'm in there, I link up with uh, some folks who have directly come to prison because of their anti-colonial, anti-imperialist ways, right? And they then start to politically educate me and now I'm on the same hype as them. I didn't realize from that moment that I will start to experience the same repression while being locked up, uh, that they were experiencing, that hadn't something that, had, that had been something I had considered at all, and I don't think people think about that at all. I think when we think about political prisoners, we think of folks like yourself, folks like Asada, right? Who was like, oh, they was down with the movement from, however, like that's exactly what got them locked up is their anti-colonial, anti-imperialist ways, not realizing that one can become awakened while they locked up, and now you under, like what what. From your experience, what have you seen as far as like being able to see people become politically awakened and then them starting to be treated completely, like start to experience the same type of repression that you've experienced since the moment you got in there? What would that look like? Same thing I had to suffer, uh, being harassed all the time, having your cell searched for no reason, uh, uh, having your mail uh, uh, tampered with, having your phone calls tapped, uh, 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 them uh, not giving you the kind of job that you are deserving inside the prison. Uh, whatever kind of menial job that may be, uh, uh, essentially pointing you out as the quote-unquote uh, troublemaker, right? Because you are boisterous, uh, you're speaking against the system because the system is oppressive, right? Uh, or you become a jailhouse lawyer, you know what I'm saying? And you're fighting for the rights of other prisoners. Usually you have the, 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 the capacity, the human, uh, to use the law, right, to fight back, right? Uh, you, you'll be targeted for doing so. 
you know, and, and listen, man, anytime you fight against oppression, you expect a, 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 a great repression. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Uh, that's nature of the game, you know? Uh, and, and so, um, so those brothers inside the penitentiary, or sisters also inside the penitentiary, who has uh, decided to become woke, right, and recognize that the system is screwed, right, and then they not get a fair shot, and then they have uh, has some historical foundation in which they are engaged in the struggle, right, then you got to give kudos to them. You know what I'm saying? Uh, they on the track of fight back, right, and it's important, man. You know, we don't leave them people hanging in, in, in the wind like that. You know what I'm saying? Like they say, they don't leave those soldiers left behind. You know what I'm saying? We can't leave our, our comrades in, in prison left behind. And so we need to fight for the release of Mutulu, the release of uh, uh, Sundiata, release of Maroon, release of Chip, right? release of Voranza, uh, uh, right? Now, another story. Voranza was granted parole. Was granted parole. Was on the front door, walked out to the penitentiary, right? And Gonzalez, who was the attorney general at the time, said he's not going to release him. Right. The superintendent was at the front of letting him go out the prison, being released. And Gonzalez, who was the uh, attorney general at the time, uh, uh, sent it back, sent it back to his cell. Yeah, gave away everything in his property, sent it back to his cell. Right? He's been in prison now almost 10, ten years as a result of that, having been already been granted parole by the parole board. And they just didn't want to let him go. Right? Illegal, illegal, straight up, straight up, illegal. He's been held hostage. For over 10 years, Ronza. Yeah, he's a political president, right? We should be fighting for his release, you know? But if you don't know these stories, you don't understand these things, how are you gonna fight for them? Unless you realize it's important to build a mass movement, right? Okay, so that's what that's what Jericho is doing. That's the work of Jericho, right? And that's the reason why Jericho needs to be supported. And Jericho is, 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 is not a black organization, right? Because we know there are Native Americans that we support, like Linda Peltier, right? Uh, there are uh, 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 Mexican, uh, Chicano uh, prisoners that we support. There are white prisoners support, like David Gilbert, right? Yeah. Uh, whose whose son is now a district attorney in, uh, uh, in San Francisco, right? Uh, and we, we fight for all the, all of their releases. Right? When you, free them all. When when, when you say when you say mass movements, it's not just about the number of people, right? It's about the number of people while addressing all the forms of um like imperialism and colonization so like when you touch on like the importance of yeah like fighting for political prisoners creating survival programs that's what it's it's not it's not separate the one is not separate from the other okay all right no one is not separate from this it is building a a mass movement for for liberation and freedom okay uh, you know, we live in a system that's based upon profiteering and and, and exploitation. All right. Uh, anytime you have uh, what 600, 600 billionaires that control ninety percent of the wealth of three hundred and three hundred and sixty million people, something wrong with that. Something wrong with that equation. Something extremely wrong with that equation. And and, and it baffles me. I'm be honest with you. It baffles me. How the American population permit themselves to be exploited in that capacity, right? Six hundred billionaires control ninety percent of the wealth of the country. You already 70, said it. It's our minds. Yeah, I mean, yeah, even yeah. looking at the pandemic so, right now too. Like, and so the rest of us, the rest of, uh, of the American population, 
It's fighting for 10% of the wealth. We fight for the crumbs. All right? So we need to identify those 600 billionaires. Right? Need to identify them 600 billionaires and say, yo, y'all got to ante up. You know what I'm saying? Y'all got to cut these, you know, these, these, these families. I think it's 2,800 2, families. 600 billionaires, 2,800 families. We call the majority of the wealth of this country. You know, and we allow it to happen. Wait a minute. It, does, it, it baffles me how we are permitting that. You know, how the American population is permitting that. And then we're going to fight amongst each other for the crumbs mm-hmm. to fall off the table of these billionaires? Come on, man. Killing each other, robbing each other. But it just shows you how 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 strong this uh, colonial propaganda has our minds just warped, exactly. completely exactly. warped. You, the propaganda exactly. is so good we don't even identify it as propaganda sometimes. You know, from watching yeah. Netflix to watching YouTube, you don't even realize it sometimes. Even myself, I'm like, oh shit, this is propaganda. Bro, <laughs> every, show I'm watching is pure propaganda. Bro, every yeah. every every breath we take <laughs> in this world as black folks, as Africans, is being exploited, bro. Yeah. Every morning we get up and we are slaves to capitalism. Period. Every day, we have no autonomy. We do not get to choose what we do every day, at all. Yeah. I have no choice. I know I gotta make that dollar though. <laughs> and yeah, that's, I mean, that's one thing, even, you know, in uh, We're On Liberators, you know, you talk about like, you know, control the amount of time you're watching TV. You know yeah. what I'm saying? Cause there's so much propaganda coming out of it that I'm like, all right, yeah, like, even subconsciously, you know, I might just be watching this show to try to distract myself or whatever, you know, just have fun or whatever. But that shit is still controlling my mind in some type of way, subconsciously, to where I need to counteract all the propaganda that I'm you just know, science, watching. Bro. It's you basically science. It's like, <laughs> so it's not I'm like, all right, fuck, I need to go listen to a Kwame Ture speech, put that shit in, and I'm playing, I'm playing video games at the same time. So I'm gonna get, you know, myself carrying, but I'm, I'm, I'm listening to these politics. You feel okay, me? So. Okay. Let, me, let me add something to that too, as, as well, right? Sometimes when we get so caught up in the struggle, so caught, so caught up in the movement, and we don't go back and do some reflection and self-healing, all right? Uh, our sister Sophia Bukhari in her book, A War at Home, A War Before, right? She talks about that. And it's extremely important that uh, our activists read that book. You said War Before? Said, it's called War Before. The War Before, right? By sister uh, Sophia Bukhari, right? It's extremely important that you read that book because in that book, she talks about the need for us to engage in self, to have a retreat, to retreat and engage in self-healing, right? Or to, to decompress, essentially. Because we can become so tied up and so caught up in the struggle, right? Uh, uh, that we uh, begin to essentially, you know, uh, become fractionalized, you know, uh, uh, in, our, in our own thinking, right? Uh, we become, um, you know, what's the word I'm looking for? I can't, find it. I can't think of the word right now. Uh, isolated. Become, huh? Isolated? No, 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 not, not isolated, but we become so uh, uh, caught up in the struggle that we 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 often we hurt ourselves, yeah. right? Mentally and psychologically, we hurt ourselves, uh, and uh, we are we are saying too much trauma, right, from the people, right, and trying to work on areas of healing that trauma, right, by providing all these different services, and it's like a like a nurse in the trauma in the, in the trauma unit, right, going and healing people day after day after day after day. You know, and, and seeing death and seeing uh, uh, people being injured and hurt. You know, and how do they survive that? They got to go back and they got to go to retreat. You know what I mean? To decompress for a period of time. And same thing for us in, in the movement, in the struggle, right? Uh, there's a point in time where we have to take a retreat, have to go back and decompress. 
you know, uh, and restricts them to heal. All right. And then go back in, go back into, into the fray again. What, what would that, what would that, what does that look like for you? Cause something that I, that I've, like you said, we all struggle with it, but it's also something that I've found like motivating from watching you is you have a, a certain joy and optimism as someone who's witnessed um, some of the most heinous acts that this country can impose on, impose onto our people. Like what, what do you do for, for healing? Into into recharge. <laughs> oh, I write poetry. All right, some of them put in my book, some of them I don't. All right, I just get away, I shut down, and I go inside myself. All right, and I just let it come out in, in in poetic form. You know what I mean? And I release. It's also, I pray. All right, I make my prayers, bro. You know what I'm saying? I believe in 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 the divine. Right? I believe in the power of prayer. And that's my solace, right? And so I, I do that, right? Uh, and let me tell you, let me tell you a story. Um, I was locked in Old Queens, um, uh, and it was four of us in, in a whole tier, just four, right? In New York City, it was in 1972. And uh, the four of us was Max Sanford, um, uh, Rap Brown, Myself and a guy named Collins, he was a, he was just a, a notorious bank robber. And at the time, I thought myself being, I'm a black communist, man. You know what I'm saying? And I, uh, I remember, I remember seeing that interview. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm a Marxist Leninist. <laughs> all, all that religion, you don't talk to me about religion. <laughs> yeah, I, want hear, I want to hear none of that. None of that. I want to hear none of that. Right? I was a dialectic historical materialist, period. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. And that's okay. how niggas be selling on Twitter. I swear. <laughs> <laughs> Period. And so, and so Max Stafford, and Max Stafford was the leader of RAM, Revolutionary Action Movement. Okay. And you know who uh, uh, Rap Brown was, right? Jamil Al Amin. Rap Brown. Yeah. Right? And I used to see these two guys, they get up in the morning and do their prayers. Right? Five times a day doing their prayers. Right? Max Stafford became Muhammad Ahmed. And uh, and and Rap Brown became uh, Jamil Alameen, Abdul Alameen, right? And I just battled with him. I'm just man, you know, your knees and praying, blah 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 blah, right? <laughs> and uh, for about six months, I argued with him uh, about this, this whole idea. I had read a book called uh, 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 Anti Doring, right, by uh, by Frederick Engels, and it was dealing with questions of metaphysics, uh, the metaphysical world, right? Metaphysical means other than the physical, okay? And he basically, he's making the point of uh, arguing towards materialism, that we live in a materialistic world, right? And materialism. And so, <clears throat> uh, so that was my position in regards to these issues of spirituality, right? Now, keep in mind two things, right? One, I was baptized as, as, as a Catholic, right? Uh, by, by my mom, you know, as a baby, right? Uh, I went to a, a Catholic school for about five years. We share that in common. <laughs> yeah, right. And uh <laughs> and uh uh but I rejected it, right? Because I didn't I I can't believe this 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 Trinity thing, you know, uh that they believe in, you know. and that, that just didn't fit right for me, you know. Logic didn't fit right for me. And so um uh so making that kind of argument with Muhammad Ahmed and uh, Jamil Adamin, right? 
we came to one conclusion. And basically we had what they call a Faustian compromise. All right. Uh, be damned if you do, be damned if you don't. Kind of compromise. And one thing that I, as a scientist, in my thinking, one thing that I could not get rid of the fact that <clears throat> energy never dies. Physics will tell you the energy transmute and transform. The energy never dies. So this thing, this energy that we call life, right? This spark of where it is, we call life, this energy, right? If it doesn't die, then where does it go? After it leaves this body, after this body, this physical entity disappeared, what happened to this energy? They just dissipate into the into the ethers and disappear. And if it does so, does it take consciousness with it? Right? Because another thing that we have not yet really defined is the issues of consciousness. Some people say science, social scientists would say consciousness comes from your, your social environment, right? But then the question then is if a baby was put in a closet in the dark for all its life, would they have a consciousness? Right? There are no other social experiences, right, that they can relate upon, right? Would it have consciousness? And my conclusion, my thinking is that it would. It would be thinking upon themselves and the world that it is in, in that closet, right? But more so than anything else, it would be thinking upon himself, okay? And so if energy never dies, then the Faustian compromise is if energy never dies and there is not, there is not a heaven or an afterlife, right? Then you don't lose nothing, okay? But then if there is an afterlife and then you're not adhering to the criteria from which that the afterlife Allegedly, allegedly says this is how you're supposed to live, then you lose everything going forward after this incarnation. So the question then to me is that when a baby is in the womb, right, does it know about the world outside of the womb? Right? And there's a possibility that this world is a womb for the next world. Stay with me now. All right. Because there's a separation between, there's a barrier between one form of existence to the next form of existence. All right? That's growth and development. And so, for me, in that understanding of science, scientifically, I hedge my bets. All right? That perhaps there is something beyond this incarnation. Right? That I cannot accept that this is the end of, be all and end all. Right? If, in fact, energy transmute and transform, perhaps it takes consciousness with you, with it, right? And then there is something where you go into the next evolutionary development of our quote unquote existence. And on the basis of that understanding, we try to be scientific, right? Trying to be a materialist. <laughs> <right>? <laughs> I had to come to the conclusion, I had to come to the conclusion that the, perhaps there might be something else behind after this, this incarnation. And therefore, I'm hedging my bets that there is, and that there are some some un uh, uh, phenomenons that we have yet really to tie into, really uh, really define uh, in regards to what's going on in, in our in our existence in our world that will indicate that there may be something beyond this here. Uh, and so, as as Rap said, uh, as uh, Jamil once asked, he said, "Listen, man." You're a good person, right? I said, yeah, man, I'm a good person, man. And he said, he said, he said well, if you're a good person, then you ain't gonna lose nothing but becoming a Muslim, right? Can you be still doing the same thing you're doing anyway? But you're hedging your bets for the hereafter. That makes sense to me, right? And if it ain't no hereafter, then you ain't lost nothing. 
But for this, you lost everything. Going forward, according to the religion, according to the doctrine of the religion. All right. And so uh, there's some other experiences that I've had that, you know, that led me to uh, uh, some idea, some inkling that there's more to this existence than this, this, this present incarnation, you know. Uh, <clears throat> and you know, I'm going to go into that, you know, right now. But yeah, so, and, and that's the reason why. And also, historically, in terms, particularly in, in the United States, all of the major leaders of our movement, they believe in a God. Some form of spirituality. Some form of spirituality. From the Reverend Nat Turner to Malcolm X to Martin Luther King, then Mark Vessing, uh, 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 Gabriel Prosser, uh, all the way up, right? Each of them believe in the divine. It may be a different divine, you know, in name, but they believe in something of a higher being, a higher self, a higher consciousness, all right? And so that is another experience of us in this country that we have been holding on to. Unfortunately, it's been bastardized because of what has been taught to us in our oppression, all right? Uh, uh, that everything's going to be good in the by and by, as an example, all right? And so therefore, you just suffer now and you're going to get your freedom later, right? And you'll be free later. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. That's both. Man, that, ain't, that ain't what this thing is about, all right? Uh, you can have freedom here too, okay? <laughs> and in, and in the day after, all right? <laughs> <laughs> and, and the last thing that that uh, that uh, um, that was important to me in terms of glad I had to ask, I had to ask that you out of me and say, listen, man, if I if I do this here, uh, then that means that I got to be like them, them Christians, you know, and. Uh, 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 get slapped in the, on the cheek and have to turn the other cheek to get slapped again. <laughs> <laughs> he said, "No." He said, "No, that's not." That's not nah, brother, not right here, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's not what this is about, though. Because in the book it says, "Fight, fight tumult and oppression wherever you may find it." Right? That's a quote in the Quran. Fight tumult and oppression wherever you may find it, and tumult and oppression is worse than slaughter. Those are quotes in the Quran. Right? The tumult and oppression is worse than slaughter. When you oppress somebody, you take away their human dignity, that's worse than just killing them. Right? When you make a person a slave, that's worse than just killing them. So fight tumult and oppression wherever you may find it. Okay? And that's where you restore your own humanity. Your own humanity. By recognizing that you are part of someone else's freedom. Yeah. A thousand percent. And I realized for myself over the years, like a lot of the people I've looked up to, like Malcolm, you know, yourself and, you know, my OG uh, Amir, a lot of them have been black Muslims, you know, and my, my partner Amir, he was putting me on like a lot of uh, black folks who came, you know, who were captured and taken here from the continent to America. They were Muslim, you know, even in, in the church, um, they were writing messages from the Quran in the church as they were forced to build the church. You know, they right. was in there saying that, you know, we're praying for Christ, whatever, lying to the to Massa and was actually praying to Allah, you yeah, know, so true. there's a, a deep black Muslim history in, in this in this country. There, there, there's two, there's two, in the history of the United States, there's two trends that has been, has been evolved throughout the diaspora, and that's the religion of Islam and the traditional uh, Yoruba uh, uh, tradition, right? 
two major ones that consistently come from all of Africa and been integrated in one way or another in the, the religious or the belief system in here in the United States. You know, uh, the, the, the Yoruba uh, religion and also uh, um, the uh, um, uh, Islamic uh, tradition, all right? And where the Yorubas had taken the saints of the Christian saints and, and, and evolved them into their own uh, 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 iconic, iconology of, of, of the course of the, of the religion, all right? And so, uh, so those traditions come, coming out of Africa, uh, Northeast Africa and Africa, uh, are the mainstays uh, that maintains our, our spiritual uh, uh, foundation, all right? <clears throat> uh, in the struggle. Uh, yeah. Right, well, did I answer your question? Yeah, that was perfect. <laughs> no, that was okay. Perfect. I I got I got one last question. Um and it came up it came up in our class the other day. Um but you mentioned like I, I don't meet me and Blake be just in the house talking about this shit 24-7, stressed out. But like trying to find that balance between understanding that it's, it's a marathon, but there are actions that we need to be taking every day so that we do in fact to do what you said, like leave something behind for the next generation and that we do right by our elders like yourself and what y'all have left for us and building on that. Um, but in the class you mentioned like, man, we got like 25, 30 years and this thing is over type shit. And so I wanted, could you, uh, <laughs> could you elaborate on how we supposed to be running a marathon, but we also have these crucial years ahead of us where we got to make some real strides in order to cement yeah. our chances that can discontinue marathon. Yeah, especially too, you know, with the rise of, you know, tr Trump and, you know, the, the violence from his uh, his supporters and his uh, white militias, the, the, the white militias and these uh, neo Confederates. Um, yeah. Well, all right. <laughs> Part of this, part of this uh, entire uh, not understanding, right? In, in regards to history, remember now, history is, is the foundation for which you have to move forward. You don't know the history, know where you've been, you ain't gonna know where you need to go. Okay, uh, so we have to understand history, and so <clears throat> uh, in 1918, and they had that pandemic, the flu, Spanish flu, came yeah. across this country, right? uh the pandemic and uh after that pandemic 1919 from 1919 to 1925 right white folks went crazy all right uh and there was the red summer where it's killing black people from illinois down to 1925 the destruction of of, of tulsa all right uh and so we find similarly today that came same history right uh where after the pandemic or as a part of the part of this process of the pandemic right white folks acting crazy again right and so is, is history repeating itself uh some might say yes okay uh what they did and uh three weeks ago four weeks ago in the capital was telling uh the state of this country the state of this union Alleged union, right? <clears throat> uh, 70,000, 70 million people voted for Trump as a hero, a white supremacist, okay? 
And I would imagine there's probably 30, another 30 million who are silent, uh, silent supporters with this idea of, of white supremacy. And so I don't see with that understanding, with, with, with this history of this country, I don't see it going away, all right? Uh, go back to history, again, go back to Civil, Civil, Civil War uh, and the, uh, the surrender of the Confederates. Uh, that surrender was not a defeat. The Confederates were never defeated, all right? They were dismantled as a military force. The Hayes Tilden Compromise gave them an opportunity to resurrect, right? I believe in 19, 1940, 20,000 Klansmen and dressed in the regalia, Washington, Washington, marched in Washington, right? Had a, had a, had a ticket pick, a, a, a parade for Washington, D.C., uh, 20,000 Klansmen. That informs uh, today when we saw what happened in uh, North Carolina or South Carolina, uh, uh, where a sister Ahaya uh, was, was killed, a young young woman was murdered. Uh, but ran over by the car, remember? Uh, Charleston a couple years ago, wasn't that yeah, Charleston? Yeah, Charleston, Charleston. Yeah, Charleston. Yeah. okay, cool, Charleston. And uh, they had the, uh, those uh, white folks who was, was marching, camera, the Jews never, uh, Replace us, and et cetera, right? They had a big march, the ticket, and throwing the candles and things of that nature. <clears throat> uh, so it's, it's been a process by which they have trying to resurrect themselves, resurrect the, the, the Confederate, resurrect the South. And uh, hold that in juxtaposition to our migrating back to the South. Black people migrating back to the black belt, right? Uh, a book that just recently came out, The Devil You Know, by the name named Charles Blow, right? And I, while I don't agree with everything of his analysis and regards to that, he has made the petition that black people should return back to the South, right? And be re empowered by numbers, by numbers. So as we move forward, my thinking, the possibility, and I'm not, I can't predict. Right. But the possibility exists being a dialectic historical materialism, using the principle of dialectic historical materialism, right? Uh, we can make certain equations, formulas, and so, as social scientists to see the possibilities that there's going to be a major uproar in this country in a few more years, right? Uh, what is going to be torn apart? That's a possibility. So if we put that in the possibility category, right? Then what do we do in terms of addressing that issue of that possibility? <clears throat> and that's the reason why it's so important in my thinking that we first are preparing ourselves for liberation and independence. Emancipation, abolition, and liberation. Mm -hmm. All right. And so that's the reason why I said that I don't think in the next 25 years. Uh, that we're going to have another resurgence, another resurgence that will be cataclysmic in this country. And we need to be prepared for that. Okay. And 
so uh them 70 million plus they ain't going away to the other white folks who are the sisters and brothers and aunties and uncles and and grandfathers and grandmothers of them 70 million they ain't addressing it and if they don't address that if they don't shut that down this country is done done okay so white folks got to get better get get busy with, the, with them other white folks and straighten that out that they want to keep this country right and they can't blame us black folks and people of color for what's happening in this country they can only blame themselves all right and for as i can see right now it's done you know and i'm, and I'm an optimist i'm I'm the optimist. I ain't the pessimist. I'm the optimist <laughs> in this matter, all right? And from the understanding of dialectics, understanding the principles of social sciences, right? Um, if these matters are not addressed uh, up front and straight up, in terms of 70 million plus, uh, and this guy, uh, Trump, uh, still uh, being able to rally his troops because uh, he's an egomaniac, maniacal uh, monster, and I'll put it that way, All right. uh, that he's going to be part and parcel of the destruction of this country. If he can't control it, he's going to destroy it. All right. And they're going to go down with it. And I'm saying the black folks, save your behind free your mind and your behind will follow we got to get out the way we got to get out the way and like i said before white supremacy you'll be white supremacy be white supremacy y'all go over there and be that white supremacist don't come up here and mess with me don't mess with us right go about your business all right you white folks you got issues you got to deal with white folks okay it's when you try to impose your white supremacy upon me that i will defend myself we have, I have an inherent right to self-preservation. Everybody does. It's our human right. Human right. Fuck what the law said. We got our human right. <laughs> yeah. We, we, okay, so you understand my point, right? Yeah. Play yep. rational and logical. Yep. All right. And if you understand the science, you understand history, <clears throat> then we, we, we also understand that there's issues that could be and they're planning for it. You know, they already told you, say, we're going to be having a civil war. They, I mean, shit, as soon as uh, the pandemic hit and, you know, they're talking about Trump getting out of office, all these gun spikes, you know, they buying all the guns, they yeah, buying all yeah. the ammos. It's it's Come clear on, as day. Man. You know, here, even in Napa, there was a, a, a white dude who just got arrested. He with, you know, 50 plus guns, pipe bombs, and, you know, he a white supremacist. Yeah, yeah. So, they, so they're preparing, you know, they're getting, they're getting ready to do what they're going to do. You yeah. know, <clears throat> and uh, that's why we got to be future focused, huh? Future focused, my brother. Future focused, you know. Yes, we have to be future focused. You know what I mean? Uh, we can't dwell in the past. We can't. And I can't. Can't actually dwell in the here and now. You know what I'm saying? We got to prepare for the, for what's coming up in in the future. And so we have to be future focused. You know, we have to think in our minds and in our thinking in terms of what, what we are doing. That's to preserve our our lives today. So we have something to give to our babies tomorrow, all right? We got to be future focused, and we got to build towards our own liberation, our own independence, 
decolonization, right? And we decolonize our mind, so we decolonize our our, our, our practice. All right. So that that's that's the deal, bro. Appreciate you. This uh, it's so amazing to have this conversation. Yeah, <laughs> words can't even describe it. You feel me? It's it's not only affirming, but just you know, if you a hell black listener, if you listen to the first episode to now, it's like, you know, your name has came up a long, a lot of times. You know what I'm saying? And for you to be on here, it's 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 a blessing, man. Thank you, cuz. Appreciate you, and I love you, man. I love you too, my brother. Love yeah. you too, Delancey. Yeah, I, I love you too, man. I know. I um. I love and appreciate you. I, I can't say it enough. Um, like I think oftentimes I think about the impact that you've had on me as an organizer, but now I'm starting to, to really understand the impact that you have on me as a human being. Um, and I, I thank you for, for leaving um, guided principles and actions for us to follow. Um, and I, I think, you know, this year, which you only have been home for like the last like five or six months, I think this is just but a, a small piece of the impact that we're going to have on folks, whether it's the podcast, um, the class that you're doing, you know, we're going to be able to do a, a lot of meaningful and impactful work in the name of liberation and unification. So uh, I want to just thank you again. Let me, let me make maybe one more, one more uh, point. Um, <clears throat> let me just raise one more issue. I got a bunch of issues, but let me just raise one more. <laughs> Here I'm, I'm in Rochester, and I'm a um, I'm a uh, organizer for uh, Citizen Action, right? It's a statewide organization here in Rochester, doing some good work, right? And, and dealing with the issues of, of oppression and uh, uh, questions of white supremacy and 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 uh, those those kind of things in, in this in the state. A lot of the work is done through lobbying and trying to get the laws changed. Remember, the laws is the things that make moves people to do the things that they do in their behavior. Right, uh, we didn't talk about policing today, but policing is based upon law, okay? And the law is, is what protects the police and the police is fulfilling the obligations they have towards uh, maintaining the law. All right, come from uh, child, well, I'm get it from child slavery uh, to where the police actually came into existence as slave patrols uh, to today. And they still operating them same concepts and principles. Right? And the law uh, with them was that they, uh, capture the slaves and put the slaves away, you know, put them back in their place and their order. And basically that's what the police is doing today. That's how they operate, right? Based on that history. <clears throat> At any rate, what I would like for us to do, and I'm just making this proposal, right? I'm trying to make this proposal here in, in, in Rochester. Uh, Rochester is uh, a school district. It's one of the worst, or I think the worst, the fifth worst school district uh, in the state of, Cal state of uh, New York. Right, uh, the babies here, uh, the young people here, uh, the school system is tore up, tore up from the floor up, right? And we need to figure out a new ways how to change that. Um, here you have in Rochester, the, the majority of the students are black and Hispanic, right? The majority of the teachers, 80% of the teachers are white women, right? And I think there's another three or four or five percent of white men. Uh, all of these people have been teaching black babies, black and brown babies, right? And that's a problem. Right? There's a problem of identity. There's a problem of the way they are being taught. Uh, in, in essence, in, in certain instances, where it's innate or overt, uh, uh, the issues of white skin privilege, it seeps into the processes of, of teaching these kids, teaching these babies. And there's no wonder why they're not wanting to go to school 
uh, and dealing with the issues of school. And so, and then there's the myriad of other issues uh, that these kids are trying to bring into the school building, you know, whether it be a question of gang violence, uh, uh, drugs, uh, domestic violence, uh, uh, food deserts, um, um, uh, poverty, homelessness, uh, all these issues they're being brought into the school building as they're trying to learn. And so my thinking is that, let's take the African proverb. Remember, I'm thinking, I think it's the African, right? So let's take the African proverb of, um, it takes a village to raise a child, right? That's the African proverb. If we take the village to raise a child, and we have these buildings embedded in these communities, right? We call buildings, I'm talking these school buildings, these edifices, embedded in these communities. And let's change, let's, why not change our, the paradigm of what school is being used, these buildings are being used. If it takes a village to raise a child, why not we take these buildings and turn them into the village, right? Let's take these buildings and have every resource that these kids need to learn in these buildings, because they're already better in the community, all right? So we need to change our paradigm the way we teach across the country, right? But particularly here in Rochester, right? And, uh, and so where we're teaching the A, B, and Cs and the one, twos, and threes, Right? We also need to teach healthcare, right? Uh, uh, restorative justice, uh, um, uh, ethnic studies, um, um, uh, issues dealing with homelessness, right? Um, things that we, the Black Panther Party originally started, feeding these babies, nutrition, proper nutrition, right? And we need to take these resources, all these resources that's available and put them in these buildings. That's already better in the community. And therefore, a kid will come to come to school knowing that these resources are there for them, right? Beyond the ABCs and the one, twos, and threes, right? He get everything else that he needs to be to be a, a whole human being, not a fracture of a human being that society has already created. And that's the reason. Why, and this is the way we stop the prison, we stop the school to prison pipeline, right? That's my main focus. That's my main focus. I don't want to see these babies, these kids going to the penitentiary, right? Let's stop that. And we can start it by creating a new paradigm of educating these kids, all right? And making these buildings that village. And if we can do that, we'll change this whole structure. We'll change this whole foundation. And we make education real and not trying to teach people to become a cogwheel in the capitalist system. Mm. Community control of education, huh? There you, there you go. That's what we need. That's what we need. Decolonization. Decolonization program, bro. All right? These yep. edifices there, let's take control of these kids. Let's take control of these edifices and make them function the way they're supposed to function for our babies. Yep. That's things we need to be doing here. People's programs got to start moving Without towards, question. towards that. So. All right, so I get that to y'all. Yep, thank I'll, you. I'll do something with that. <laughs> I'll do something with that. <laughs> you just did a virtual drop mic. All right, y'all. Y'all take that and go do something. Y'all figure it out. Y'all figure it out. We are on the graders. That's what I'm trying to do here, bro. You know what I mean? That's what I'm trying to do right, Chester. So, yeah, I think you get done. You know? Yeah. It's needed. Yeah. You know? Uh, it's needed. We need, we need to make, make a new paradigm you know, in terms of teaching. Uh, decolonization we need to build build a new edifice, a new way of thinking in terms of teaching. We need to, we need to bring that village.
together to raise these babies, man, to raise these children. Very extremely important. The next generation as they take the strength to the next level. Yeah. All right. So, all right. Appreciate you. Have a good one, OG. Love to you and the fam, man. All right. I'm going to talk to you soon. I got something right. coming in the mail for you, too. Hello. All right. <laughs> <laughs>